beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Girth. Yo, welcome back to uh, my summer lair. And uh, my guest today is uh, Andrew Keen. And he just wrote a book called The Internet is Not the Answer. Um, one of the follow-up books to uh, The Cult of the Amateur from a few years back. So well, thank ready. you. Thank you for inviting me. Very cool studio. Let's start with the uh, simple one. Um, just kind of give us a breakdown of uh, what your premise is with the internet is not the answer. The premise of the internet is not the answer is that the internet now, which is almost 50 years old, uh, first computer-to-computer communication was in 1969. So by 2019, we'll have had 50 years of computer-to-computer communication. The web now is 25 years old, more than 25 years old. Uh, the promises of the internet of more economic equality, uh, a better platform for cultural creators to sell their stuff and make a living, uh, more innovation, more opportunity in terms of jobs. That hasn't been realized. And the reality of the internet economy, which is increasingly becoming the mainstream economy, changing every industry from transportation and healthcare and education to media, finance, and government, is that the digital revolution is actually compounding two or three different crises that we're faced with at the moment. The first is over the growing inequality between rich and poor, the crisis of jobs, particularly what we're going to do in, a, in an age of increasingly dominant artificial intelligence, and the appearance of a surveillance-style economy where the so-called free products like Google and Facebook are resulting in a world in which everything we do, everything we wear, everywhere we go, everything almost we think, is being recorded by these large companies and then sold to advertising companies. Okay, so it's pretty heavy stuff. Out of the number of criticisms that you have um, in terms of how the um, internet is like basically penalizing uh, creators, um, some of the, it's not creating as many jobs and stuff like that, was there any particular criticism that you had that was that was alarming? Well, I think all this stuff's alarming. Uh, um, you know, some of it is less easy to prove than others. I think it would be wrong to argue that the internet is the only cause of inequality. Uh, there was increasing inequality even before the in appearance of the internet. And some people have written whole books about inequality without really talking about the digital economy. Uh, but the digital economy was supposed to be democratizing. It was supposed to give more power to more people. And whilst it's true it's given lots of people a platform to say anything they want, most of what they say is inane or narcissistic or silly or insulting. So it really isn't benefiting any of us. I think in overall terms, this is shocking. Uh, we all love the Internet. I, I love it as much as anyone. I, I use it as much as anyone. I'm not saying we should switch it off. I'm not saying we should smash our machines, do away with our cell phones. But I am warning people that unless we confront these issues and deal with them, that this problem is only going to get worse, we're still in the relatively early stages of the digital revolution. We're still on the verge of something called the Internet of Things or every device we have from the the bottles we're drinking are from and our clothing and our furniture and our bars and our homes and our cities, everything's going to be connected. So we're, this is the century of big data. This is the century of the digital revolution. And unless we start addressing some of these problems and issues now, they're going to get really serious in the future. 
And you mentioned right at the top of that, the, the narcissism and this kind of now, this age of the self-celebrity, where p taking selfies and things like that is kind of promoting this, like, uh, your own in-house 15 minutes of fame. Right. We, it was the, the internet was supposed to be social. It's been sold to us as this place where everyone will talk to one another, which will expand our boundaries, which will enable us to understand peoples and ideas from entirely foreign cultures. And whilst it's true, I'm sure some of that's going on, the majority of the internet involves us talking to ourselves. It's made up of a, an echo chamber culture. Uh, and the logical conclusion of that, of course, is the selfie, where we spend our time on the internet taking photographs of ourselves and then posting them. Uh, the internet didn't Im invent the selfie, didn't invent narcissism, which means uh, uh, an unhealthy, unnatural, uh, dangerous love of the self. The Greek, the ancient Greeks were the people who invented the myth of Narcissus and the dangers of narcissism. The lots of people have reflection. Yeah, lots of people have written about narcissism before the internet. There's a famous American uh, social cultural critic called Christopher Lash who, who wrote whole books about the dangers of narcissism I in the 1970s. But it's compounded it, it's quickened it. And it means that the little cell phones or the smartphones and mini computers that we pull out of our pocket far too often every day, we're spending most of the time staring at those as mirrors. They are powerful computers. We could write great novels and make symphonies and learn about mathematics and physics on these devices. But mostly, we're just using them to reify ourselves. We're using them to broadcast our own selfies. It's this very indulgent, narcissistic, unhealthy culture. And do you think that's starting to bleed then in how um, that narcissistic culture and how we're fueling that, is that starting to bleed in our uh, reactions and our connections offline then with different people and things like that? Well, I think it's a mistake to see the Internet as, if you like, a first mover, as if the Internet affects our behavior offline. Just as I think it's wrong to believe that our offline behavior determines our online behavior. The reality is that we spend so much time now online, almost as much in many ways as we spend off time, that our behavior on and offline is entangled like a, a ball of yarn. And it's harder and harder to disentangle, to distinguish the two of them. So our online behavior influences our offline behavior as much as our offline behavior influences our online. I don't like as a writer to get too involved in what we would call causality and first movers and saying, oh, well, it's our behavior on the Internet that determines everything else or it's our behavior in the physical world that determines everything else. The Internet is such an important part now of, our, of many of our existences uh, that it can't be separated from the so-called real world. And the Internet is, in most respects, just as real as the physical world. Okay. Switching gears for a moment, you have, I like the chapter where you talked about um, kind of going through record shops because you grew up in the UK. Yeah. And you, ha you went on, uh, you went a number of different streets and you could see all the different record shops and kind of going through the crates and that kind of, and that's kind of gone away now, obviously, uh, with the digital music and stuff like that. Before I get to like the main question, though, I just want to know if you're, is there, if there's any type of music that you're listening to these days or something fun that's making you go, ooh. Well, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, I have a background in the music industry. Uh, my 
my knowledge and entry into the digital economy was I had a music startup called Audio Cafe. I used to be a music journalist. And I got heavily involved in the, um, in the CD revolution. I thought in the 90s that digital was the future. I got really excited by CDs. I bought hundreds, thousands of CDs, all, all sorts, uh, classical, jazz, rock, everything. Um, and I had a hundred, uh, I had huge collection like everybody else. And then maybe two or three years ago, for some reason or other, I stopped listening. And I kind of, and then one day, I don't know why, I may have been just in a bad mood, but I took <laughs> them all up to my store up the road and sold them all. So I had no music left. So I thought, okay, I'll subscribe to Spotify or I'll subscribe to one of these services that allows you to listen to all music all the time. I thought that was a good idea. Lots of people had said they'd mm. sold their music. Right. So I did that, but I wasn't really listening to the music. And then a few months ago, my 17-year-old son, who's way more heavily into music actually than I am, like any 17-year-old, said to me, why don't you buy a record player? And it was such a kind of irony because I was <laughs> one of these music journalists who said, you know, analog was, analog was dead, digital was the future back in the, in the early 90s, late 80s. But I did buy a turntable, a really nice regal one. And now I've started buying back all the records <laughs> that I sold as a CD. So, you know, everything from, I mean, my, my son's buying analog. And one uh, and he's really into it as well. And uh, one of the lessons I think we can learn from that is, okay, there are old guys like me who sort of go from digital to analog to digital to analog, backwards and forwards. But what's interesting to me is my son, a 17-year-old, a kid who's basically grown up on Spotify, who's grown up with the idea that you can have all the music in the world basically for free, either $10 a month, mm -hmm. which is essentially free, or free itself if you're willing to deal with the advertising. And when I was growing up, that was unimaginable. If you said to me or my friends in the 70s, all the music in the world for $10, $10 which is five pounds, five English pounds or seven English pounds, we'd have looked at you and said, you're insane. We'd have said, you, you're crazy. That's not possible. It's like having all the food in the world <laughs> yeah. or, or you know, all, the, all, the, all the cars in the world or all the accommodation. And, of course, now it's come true. But what's interesting about my son is I think he really is into analog now, into the, 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 the richness, the of, of not only the richness of the sound, but the experience, the idea of putting a record on a spinning disc and then putting a, a needle on it. And I think he reflects that generation because I think this massive resurgence of analog is being driven by young people, not by old people like me, not by nostalgists, but by young people who suddenly are discovering that music is more than just having instant access to lo-fi sound wherever you are. So sure, that's good if you're in the car, if you're running, if, if you're on your headphones uh, on public transportation. But the real musical experience is worth investing in. So I think my son's interest, and, and it's always dangerous to build arguments out of anecdotal experiences with your kids, <laughs> but the reality is it. it's, it's not just my son. There is this massive renaissance of analog, of vinyl. I'm sure you're seeing it yeah. in this bar and with all your music friends. And I think that speaks in an encouraging way about the future of the music industry. Because I think the music industry has been a, the, the, the canary in the coal mine. It's been the thing that tells us what the future is. It got decimated early 
uh, after the invention, after the introduction of Napster in 1999, the revenue of the, mu the, the global recorded music industry is cut, has been cut in half. Um, so the music industry is in bad shape. Professional musicians are struggling. Everyone's struggling. The labels are shutting down. So this reappearance, this, this rebirth in some ways of analog is hopeful. Now, it's never going to become mainstream. You're never going to get most people spending 20 or $30 on a record. You're never going to get them buying back you know, expensive turntables. But I think it speaks of the appearance of, of a niche, maybe of a high end of people, who will always buy analog books and records um, and who appreciate high quality stuff. That makes sense, because in the book you had a line, um, you talk about the abundance of music being a catastrophe. That was the line, I think, and in one of the chapters. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a rather polemical point. Yeah. Um, but the abundance, when I say that the abundance of music is a catastrophe, it's not. It's a catastrophe, obviously, for the labels, because they can't sell the stuff anymore. Too much of it got stolen. The issue of piracy is less prominent than it was, but it's still a big issue. Um, it's bad for artists. It's an ironic situation where we're listening to more and more music, but it's harder and harder to make a living. Now, some people would say, oh, you're an old reactionary. The labels were terrible. They were exploitative. And there's some truth to that, and the labels were exploitative, but some of that money trickled down to the artists. Some people will say, oh, the artists now can do everything live. They go on, on the road. They, they go to gigs. There's a huge demand now for live music. They can sell their T-shirts online. They can be on Twitter and Facebook and promote themselves. And those things are true. That's really hard work. When you talk to most kids who have been on the road, who are living in vans, who are having to sell their stuff on Facebook, it's a real struggle. And it's a real graft. It's very rare that even the most talented musicians today are not realizing uh, middle-class livings, which I think is, is very sad. It's very sad, obviously, for the musicians. But saddest of all, it's sad for all of us because we're, we're not getting the best from our creative people. Every generation, there are creative people. This generation is as creative as any generation in history. Every generation, you know, there's a Dylan, there's a Joni Mitchell, there's, there's The Clash. But today, those people have to be really good at marketing and self-promotion. So the real talent, I fear, isn't coming through. And, and it's you and I, music lovers, who are missing out. Plus, these guys are having to end up working in bars because they're not able to cut it, making a living as musicians. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying before about music being an experience, right? Because you can't, the whole idea of Spotify and now Apple's gone into the streaming business it's just the idea of consumption, consumption, consumption. It's an open buffet. And you don't really go to an open buffet to like if you're a food lover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a contradiction in terms. There's a, a famous restaurant where I live in, in California called Chez Panisse. Yeah, you, it, Chez Panisse doesn't have a sign outside saying, you know, $20 is all you can eat. You go in, you order stuff off the menu. And you're right. The, the, the all-you-can-eat model, the Spotify model, isn't for the music connoisseur. Um, it doesn't sound good, and after a while, you get sick of it. It's boring. It's the one of the beautiful things about the, the, the creative economy. I think as a consumer, is scarcity. There's always the idea: oh well, I'll buy this record, this CD, this book. I'll go to this movie this week, and then next week I'll go to the next one. But if you can have everything you've ever wanted all on one website, all on one web, on, on app, 
it, it takes away the desire. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's ironic uh, that ubiquity is so bad. And of course, in Silicon Valley, it's presented as a good thing because these companies raise huge amounts of money. A tiny group of technologists get really rich, but the creative people don't see any of that. And meanwhile, the people who used to work in record stores, the people who used to work at the labels, the people who used to drive the vans that take the CDs to the record stores, all those people have lost their jobs. So how do we return then, like, how do we equip and empower creative people then so that they can, like, we can create that middle class that you're talking about? Because obviously we don't just benefit from creativity, but we also benefit from having a stronger middle class as well. Yeah, you're right. That's the great question. That's, you know, excusing the pun, the $100 billion question or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. And um, it's a pretty expensive question. It's a very expensive question, not only in dollar terms, but in existential terms and in cultural terms, in social terms. The best societies are ones which are able to enable their smartest, most creative, most daring people to make a living. Now, there'll always be creative people. I don't deny that. What's interesting is that some parts of the creative economy are doing really well, like conceptual art. I think the point that you raised earlier is an interesting one about the experience, because what we're seeing is more and more of an experiential economy. People want the physical experience. So as a writer, for example, I don't make a, you know, I've been reasonably successful as a writer. I certainly do better than the average writer, and it's hard even for an average writer now to get publishing deals. But I make a lot more money through public speaking, through public engagement, than I do through my books. So the experiential economy is good for writers, especially in the nonfiction area. It can be good for bands if they really have cult live followings. Um, but it's a struggle in other areas, like for photographers. What do they do? Um, or what does movie directors do? They're, you know, It's all very well to talk about movie theaters as experiences maybe you go to a movie theater and like this we drink while we're doing the radio show you have dinner while you're watching a movie I mean they have movie theaters like that in Austin and some other places but that's still hard the scary thing is there's no guarantee of there being a creative economy uh, there's nothing inevitable there's nothing guaranteed about it uh, Scott Timberg who's quite a well-known ex-Los Angeles Times journalist has just written a book called The Death of the Creative Class I'm not sure if he quite believes that there's going to be a death but it's not unimaginable well, the other thing that's scary and this is the other side of the coin when it comes to the new inequalities people have written about this is that the only people now who can really afford to make music in serious way, invest many hours in it, or write books, or make movies, are the people who are already wealthy. So you see more and more, you know, tech billionaires or Wall Street investors suddenly decide that they're going to become artists, they're going to become writers, they're going to become musicians, or their kids, uh, you know, trust fund kids who don't have to worry about work. So that's worrying, and also we're seeing a return to the sort of a gilded age where rather than determining income and value and popularity through record sales or book sales. The only way now to, 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 to get a real gig, to get support for your work, is to get a wealthy person to invest in you. And I'd rather have a public audience as a writer. Yeah. I'd rather be selling my books in bookstores than have some wealthy person saying, oh, I'd like you to write another book about how you hate the internet, because I'm never quite sure what their agenda is. 
and it undermines your credibility, and it's a very insecure kind of life. So we're, we're returning to the, the, the age of patronage, back to the 18th century. It's one of the ironies of technology and the Internet, is that the future is really always the past. When we think that technology is going to take us into the future, it always takes us backwards. And what this kind of technology seems to be doing in many ways is taking us back to the gilded age of the 19th century, even back to the 18th century, where wealthy, powerful aristocrats determined who got to write music, who got to write books, uh, who got to make cultural and political statements. Yeah, and this and, is... And one, one thing just to add, you're seeing this in, mu in, in newspapers as well. Um, the, the crisis of the publishing industry is particularly seen in newspapers. We've seen the decimation of, of, of newspapers, especially provincial newspapers and journalists over the last 20 years. And what we're seeing simultaneously are these new wealthy, this new wealthy techno elite buying up these papers. So yeah, Bezos just bought the yeah, Washington Bezos Post. Yeah, Bezos bought the Washington Post. I'm very dubious of him. I read about him in my book and his libertarian politics. Yes. There's an even worse story, a guy called Chris Hughes, who got lucky, happened to be Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard, became the first marketing director at Facebook, made half a billion dollars, then got out. Smart young man, but highly inexperienced, bought the New Republic, the venerable old American news magazine, more than 100 years old, made all sorts of commitments to it. The staff initially was really excited. Two or three years into his tenure, he decides that he wants to transform the New Republic into a kind of social media platform driven by tweets and Facebook updates, and the entire staff quits or gets fired. Um, so I it's really scary when very, very wealthy and often inexperienced people c take control of historic cultural institutions. That's well put. In terms of our cultural institutions, everything's always considered dying. Like, plays are always dying, and you know what I mean? Uh, paintings always dying, like... But they still continue. There still continues to be playwriters. Yeah, it's hard. Look, th there's also probably a role for the state. Now, I think we have to be a little careful, especially in America, where people are really resistant to publicly that's a bad funded. That's arts. a bad phrase to say. Yeah, in Canada, I think people are more comfortable. Where I'm originally from, in England, there's the BBC, which has had a historically central role in investing in creativity and news, although it's co continually under assault. In Canada, you have the CNBC, which I think is more like the BBC. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's always public subsidies, and the reality anyway is that the very higher-end arts, particularly things like opera and ballet and classical music, they've only ever been viable because they've been subsidized by wealthy people. So in that sense, it's not really that different. I think, though, it's, it's the mass market creativity, which is most under assault by the Internet. I don't, I don't really think the Internet is had that much of an impact on, on opera or ballet. Because if you're going to pay for tickets to go to the opera or ballet, uh, you're not going to say, okay, I'm going to watch it instead on YouTube. <laughs> yes. Or I'm going to download it on Spotify. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. So last question then, in terms of with this world that uh, you're describing, uh, how do you maintain hope? If you're starting out today as a as an artist or as a creative person, how do you maintain hope? Or even you personally, how do you maintain hope in the face of all this adversity? Well, I think I, as I said before, I am a, in my own way, a positive example of someone who makes a living as a writer, but as a public speaker, as someone who appears on radio and television, 
someone who has some media startups of my own. I run a, a salon in Silicon Valley called Futurecast, where I bring interesting people together and we talked ab about big issues. Last month in DC, we did something with Steve Case, the original founder and CEO of AOL. Mm -hmm. So I, I know how to do it. That's partly because I have some background in marketing and PR, partly because I, I used to be an entrepreneur. It's harder for young people. The depressing thing is that I fear the people who are going to be most successful, the people who are most skilled at building their own visibility and brands on, 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 on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the, the WhatsApps and the, 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 uh, the, the Facebooks, Twitters of the world. Um, so I think really creative people have to face reality, for better or worse it's unlikely they're going to achieve any success unless they're skilled in marketing. So they have a choice. Either they partner with someone who's good at marketing or they learn it themselves. Now, the problem with learning it themselves is that takes time away from their music, takes time away from the job they need to support whatever they're trying to do. But that's a reality. I think one of the great delusions of the Internet, which I've continually challenged, is this idea that oh, well, with YouTube and, 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 and Facebook, all you need to do is put your content up and you'll suddenly become popular and that will free you from the exploitation and tyranny of the, of the, of the labels or the studios. But the reality is, is that to do that requires really winning the lottery. There's always the case of the, the millionaire on YouTube, the kid who has a following of millions of followers, but they're incredibly unusual. They have a better chance of winning the lottery, really. So building a career these days is hard because you don't have publishers or record labels or, or, or studios to support you. You need to do everything. You need to learn everything. And I think my advice to, to, to creative people who are listening to this is say, okay, I, I think I'm special. You never know it. We all think we're special. Some of us are, some of us aren't. Most people who think they're special for one reason or other, probably aren't, at least in terms, in, mm -hmm. in the minds and the eyes of other people. But if you're convinced you're really good as a creative in whatever you do, and, and your friends agree, and it seems as if anyone who sees or hears or watches your stuff agrees, then it's probably best to, to find a partner who's really good at marketing, who's really smart at working the system. Because being good creatively isn't enough. And of course, the, the people who are listening to this who are very good at marketing but may not have that much creativity, they need the creatives too. So um, it's, a, it's a symbiosis. Uh, the creative and the marketing types need each other. It's very rare for people to have both. It's almost starting like a religion in a way. That's what building a fan base is like. Yeah. Because you, you start off by yourself as a creative person or you start off in a band if you're in, in music. And then you need some people to have faith in you you need to have some disciples and as those yeah. kind of disciples grow the faith spreads yeah um you know emailing lists updates all this stuff's really important the relationship you have with your audience is critical i mean in all fairness to the internet that's one of the upsides in the old days you could be distant from your audience you didn't have anything to didn't necessarily have having to do with them but today You've got to interact with your audience. You need to talk to your audience. You need them to love you, and you need to love them because it's that relationship that's key to driving a successful creative career. 
So it means if you're a writer, you need to spend time with your readers. You need to sign their books. It means if you're if you're a musician that you need to spend time with your audience, that you should have drinks with them after, after, after an act. You can't be arrogant anymore. Arrogance, I think, unless you turn out to be you know, particularly lucky, is, 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 is a real struggle. Uh, life, in some ways, is marketing. It's, it's an unpleasant reality, but it's true. Just to follow up then, um, I know the uh, the Internet is Not the Answer just came out earlier this year, I believe in January, right? So are you working on a follow-up book or is it still too early? To uh, no, it's just about the right time. I'm working on, on some ideas and hopefully I'll have um, a deal in place in the next month or two and then I'll, I'll work on writing something over the next year and, and I'll have something out in 2017. I've been very lucky. Um, often these creative de careers are determined by luck. I've been very lucky in the sense that the subject I write about is incredibly important. I'm in the middle of all this action. We're on the verge of huge new changes. Uh, the internet is just, whether or not it's the answer or not, we I think we can agree that the internet is still just the beginning. Internet of things, artificial intelligence, robots, virtual reality, nanotechnology, uh, all these things are changing our lives dramatically. So. The impact of technology on society, on identity, on what it means to us to be humans is, I think, the great question of the 21st century. And uh, I'm thrilled, honored to be uh, writing about it. And I will continue to write about it and uh, appear on shows like this. Great. So we'll have to have you back in 2017. And Absolutely. Lovely. It's a great show. I love uh, I've never been interviewed in a bar before. But <laughs> you, you, my, my only piece of advice to you is you need a live audience. You, you should be giving opportunities to people who listen to this to actually come into this amazing bar in Toronto, have a drink, and watch, watch you do your stuff. All right. Come on by to the Pacific Junction Hotel Thank bar. Thank you, Andrew Keane, for taking a few minutes. And um, I know you're here for Idea City as well, which is really kind of neat. Yeah, um, great event. I had a, a really fun... Um, Really fun speaking gig today. Uh, yeah, it was put on by what Moses uh, Mo Moses Eimer, Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a prominent nice Canadian designer yeah. who seems to be sort of your your Ted Turner of Canada. Nice <laughs> guy. So yeah, I'm gonna go and have a party tonight. But thank you so much. Thank you.